as we stand. It'll give our children an opportunity to go out to the children's church. We're in the book of Galatians, chapter 2. We'll begin our reading with verse 15 through 21. It's a short passage this morning. It's a little bit different. Um, at face value, it seems pretty straightforward, but as we get digging deeper into this this morning, hopefully we'll see that this is a, a very profound paragraph that, um, that Paul has penned for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Starting with verse 15, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles... Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners. Uh, is Christ therefore the minister or the servant of sin? May it never be. God forbid, old King James. For I build, if I build the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Notice how Paul has moved from the first person plural to the first person singular at verse 18. For if I, if this would happen... I make myself a transgressor, for I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is I who no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside. I do not frustrate. I do not disannul the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. You may be seated. So you can see how this paragraph just sort of flows. First person plural, we, four times, then I, about four times, in the last half of this paragraph. So Paul is making a switch here, and it's very intentional. So the those we statements are to encompass all the Jewish people and those who have been trying to influence the Galatian Christians to move away from the simple gospel of grace. And he's including all the Jews in this. And he says, again, and I'll just kind of read it slowly, verse 15, we who are Jews by nature. So he's including all of the Jewish people and all these Judaizers who are telling the Galatian church that Christ is not sufficient, that Christ cannot save you. You've got to add other things to Christ. 
And so Paul is emphasizing for his Jewish listener, as this letter is being read, that we who are Jews by our birth, by naturally, and we're not a part of this Gentile group that they have dubbed as sinners, that's the way the Jewish people looked upon the Gentiles. They were sinners of the Gentiles, and we're not included in that. We Jews, we're not a part of them. But then Christ comes, and now we have to say the law didn't save us? Does that make Christ then the minister of sin? Because the law, this wonderful law that we Jews had, and if we have to acknowledge that our justification comes the exact same way that everybody else's justification, does that make Christ a minister who's producing more sinners? May it never be. And so he's addressing that. Now he's saying, this is how it affected me personally. Paul knew better than anybody else what it was like to try to earn your righteousness with God. And it didn't work for him. And he goes and says, if I go back and I rebuild those things that I once destroyed, all I do is I put myself back as a transgressor because I couldn't do it that way. And all the law taught me was that I had to die to it as a means of justification. So Christ, what does Christ do? So this is probably going to be more of a, a, a teaching than a preaching message. But I, I, I think it's going to help us this morning deal with the culture that we live in. We are surrounded predominantly by the Latter-day Saint religion. And its teaching is a moral teaching. It is a a teaching that says that that we are working our way, we're meriting our salvation, we're earning our salvation through all the righteous acts that we do. Christ, yes, we say they, they would say that yes, Christ saved us, that, that Christ paid the price, he paid the down payment, and now I have to finish out my part. And that there's all these levels of heaven, three different ones, in fact. And, and so as we are talking and communicating with, with this audience around us, I think this passage will help us show the difference between biblical Christianity and what they understand as Christianity. Jesus Christ is the crux of all what we believe. Jesus is... All God, minus nothing, plus nothing. He is all the fullness of God. And God stepped into our lives. That's what is so beautiful about Christianity. It's that our God, who's so far above us, that we can't understand him, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways, God condescended to men. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of man. And on account of our sin, Christ died not only a death, but he died the death on a cross. Wherefore, God highly exalted him and gave him, Jesus, a name which is above every name. And this is a quote about 
Jehovah Yahweh God in the Old Testament, Paul now quotes, and he applies it to Jesus Christ, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is sovereign Lord. That is our Savior. And that is the unique message that we have to share with people around us, that our Creator, the one who spoke this universe into existence, who placed the stars where they are in their constellations and told the sea that this is your boundary and you can't go past it. That God walked among you and I and took upon himself human flesh and he tabernacled among us. He took upon himself a temporary tent, just like you and I, and we have beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full, full of grace and full of truth. That is our Christ. John wrote this in John 1.16, and of his fullness, pleroma. Paul uses that word over and over again. John only uses it this one time in John 1.16. Of his fullness, the pleroma, that is all of deity was found in Jesus Christ, and all the fullness we have received. We don't get any less of God when we ask Christ to come into our life. We get all of God. We have received all of his fullness and grace, charis, unmerited favor, anti-charis. Instead of, on top of, in, in more and more and more of what we, what we receive in Christ. All the attributes of God have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as believers, we enter into a relationship that is deep, that's meaningful, and it's lasting. The phrase, grace upon grace, or grace for grace, the little preposition there is anti, which means instead of or in addition to. It's in a case that means at the end of a, a, of a deal, when you exchange something and you pay for it, you're, you're giving all that you have in exchange for something else. And so God gives us all the grace, and at the end of that day, when I need more grace for tomorrow, God extends, instead of the grace of yesterday, grace instead of yesterday's grace, I get new grace. And all that is found in Jesus Christ. It's like the manna. They would collect it in the morning, and it was sufficient for that day, and God would give grace and manna for the next day. Today's grace is not yesterday's grace, and God will give it to us in the person of Jesus Christ. All of the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in Him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and I love verse 10, and you are complete in him. Do you ever feel like you're not complete? <laughs> There's just something wrong with you. I was talking to Jordan this morning, and I was saying, you know, my, my son, my, my, my son Jordan, he says, Dad, you got a, you got a disability. <laughs> I said, well, I know I got a lot of them. But uh, he was explaining to me how, I'm, how people are supposed to read. And he says, no, you're not supposed to read that way. He says, you're just supposed to be able to, and I, I thought, boy, there's something wrong with me. But fortunately, Caitlin, she, she said, no, I got the same problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we all feel like we're incomplete. 
There's something. But when you find Christ, you have found everything that God intended for you to be. You were created in the image of God, and sin has marred that. Not just marred it, it has scarred it. It has defiled it. And now in Christ, you are complete. Because all of God dwelt in Jesus Christ. And all of his fullness we have received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And that's what we have in Jesus. When Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled every single point of the law without breaking any of them. He said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. He says, don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy. I came to and here's the infinitive, Pleroma, I came to fulfill them, to be all the embodiment of what the law demanded. When we believe into Jesus Christ, we believe into all who he is. And when Jesus Christ was crucified for sin, you and I were nailed to the cross with him. Our sin was paid in full. So the first point that Paul wants to make is our justification is complete. Regardless of how good the Jew may have thought he was, how self-righteous he was, he needed a Savior or she. This morning, it doesn't matter how self-righteous we think we are, how good we think we have been, or how well we have done in life. We all need a Savior. We have to be made righteous, Paul is saying, whether we are Jews by birth or whether we're sinners by, uh, of the Gentiles. Jews naturally thought of Jews as Gentiles as deficient, as, in, as defective, that there's something wrong with these dogs. In fact, when the Syrophoenician woman came and was pleading with Jesus, the disciples said, send her away. And Jesus wanted to know how badly did she want what he had to offer. And so he says to her, it's not right to give the children's bread to the household pets. And she says, yes, but even the household pets can eat the crumbs that are on the floor. And he found out that this Gentile woman was sincere, that she was really longing for what he had to offer her. And he told her to go away. Her faith had made her whole. Then he turned around and he says, I've not seen this kind of faith among my Jewish constituents. Nothing like this woman. Rebuking the disciples and their understanding of Gentile sinners that they needed a Savior too. It was when Peter was in the boat that he finally understood who Jesus Christ really was and that he needed a Savior. It's when we get close to Jesus is when we see how sinful we are. And when these Jewish people got close to the Savior, what does it say in verse 16? Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but the faith in Christ, even we who have believed, we, we Jews, we had to believe in Jesus. Why? That he might be the justifier by faith and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law... No one will be justified, but while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found. What Paul is saying here is the closer I got to Christ, the more I saw my sin. 
And that's what we need to point people to. We don't need to compare each other with one another. The moralist will never see his sin as long as he compares himself to others. When I get close to Christ, that's when I realize how sinful I am. Now, we need to challenge people that there are only two ways to be right before God. There's only two possible ways for anybody, whatever religion you are. One is you do it yourself, and you live a perfect life. Or you trust in somebody else who's perfect for you. By legal deeds that come through human effort and human action, no flesh will be justified. If Christ alone does not save, if it's Christ plus anything, that anything will never be good enough because it will always fail. So it leaves us only with really one option, and that is placing our faith in Christ. Paul was well acquainted. He was well acquainted with what it meant to try to be righteous by the law. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, The law, I was blameless. That is just the do's and don'ts. He was blameless. But when it came to his heart, when it came to his conscience, Paul knew that he did not measure up. This is what Paul wrote. What shall we say then is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I did know no sin when the law said, Thou shalt not covet. So sin, taking its opportunity, having taken its opportunity, the word opportunity means where it's base for attack. The law is sin's base to attack you and I, to point its finger at you and I. And that's what Paul is saying here. I hadn't, didn't, didn't understand it until I went to the law. And it took its basis of operation to point its finger at me through the commandment. It produced in me all manner of evil desire. He says, I was blameless, but I could see all of my desires. I was covetous. What did Paul write to the Galatians in chapter 1? Paul said that I was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers, and I was going beyond any of my contemporaries. Paul coveted position. He coveted power. He wanted prestige. He knew what lust was through the law, and through the law it condemned him. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Well, does that make Christ the minister of sin then? Is Christ the minister of sin if I have to come to him by faith? And Paul says, of course, that's a ridiculous question. May it never be. But for the Jew... That was a legitimate question. If law-keeping is not good enough, and I've got to trust Christ, that makes me a sinner, just like all the other Gentiles who don't even have the law. So we've got to kind of put our minds in a, in a Jewish mindset as we're reading the Bible. I think one of the reasons that so much of the Bible is misunderstood is because we try to read 21st century Christianity into the Bible, and it's not there. We have all these debates 
between Arminianism and Calvinism that were never even in Paul's mind. In Paul's mind, he's thinking Jew and Gentile. When he's saying in, in this passage that we Jews, we have to admit that we need a Savior, does that make Christ now multiplying so many more sinners? Because we are included too with, Jew, with the, the ones that we used to call dogs. And, and Paul's saying, no, what is all it's really doing is pointing out to you that you're no better than anybody else. And that was a humbling blow to the Jewish person. And I think that's humbling to anybody who's a part of a moralist religion to have to say, you mean my good works are not sufficient? No, because you still have evil desires that you've got to deal with. Somebody's got to pay for that. And it was Christ who paid it in full. So admitting that you need to be justified in Christ is in effect admitting that I too am a sinner. If I need to be right with God, that takes humility. I am just as bad as the next guy. I often don't think of myself as that. But when I do, it makes me realize how deep I need to depend on Jesus. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if I am who I am by the grace of God, and I'm still a rotten smuck, that's, I mean, you guys don't know me. Thank God that you don't. You wouldn't be here this morning. You'd find a new pastor. Every single day, you and I need to be on our knees and thanking God for his goodness and for his grace. Does that make Christ the minister of sin just because I need him so much more? May it never be. It just proves what a wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord. And that's what Paul's trying to tell these Jewish people. We must abandon all claims to the law. We must abandon all notions of self-righteousness. The minister of sin, that's an objective genitive. In other words, Jesus is saying that he is, is, is Jesus producing more sin? No, all Jesus is doing when you look at the life of Jesus. And it's this plumb bob, you know, my dad was a, a car. He wasn't much of a carpenter. He hated carpentry, in fact. But my grandfather was, and, and we had all of his tools. And that's why my dad said he was going to be a school teacher. He didn't want to ever work on it, and nothing around our house ever got fixed. But but he, my, my grandpa had an old plumb bob, and it was a string, and then a. You remember those, Rick? And, and they don't use them anymore. But it was a way to show what was exactly vertical, up and down, and that's what the law is. And when we start comparing ourselves to our crooked lines, we look pretty good. But when we compare ourselves with Jesus Christ, we are way off skew. Far from Christ producing sin, all we are doing is acknowledging that we really are wretched sinners in need of a Savior. Jews were accusing Paul's gospel of producing a substantial number of more sinners. If good law-abiding people are not righteous, 
then what's the conclusion? Everyone is just as lost as anybody else. This morning, Keith was talking about a testimony that was given on Wednesday night, and, and it, was, it was Becky, and, and Becky was talking about, you know, how she really doesn't have much of a testimony, she thought, and she says, you know, I wasn't this horrible sinner, and God saved me and kept me from all a life of sin, and, and in some ways, that's a wonderful testimony, but it's also, in some ways, a deception Just because I was eight years old doesn't mean that I was not a wretched sinner because even after I got saved, I still continued to be a sinner that was saved by grace. And so every one of us are a miracle that God has taken us and placed us into his kingdom and he has justified us completely by faith in Jesus Christ. The need for Christ does not make more sinners. Our need for Jesus simply exposes that all humanity needs a Savior. The law is what increases the number of sinners. Romans chapter nine, uh, chapter 3 and verse 19 says this, For we know the law was given to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world is guilty before God. For in Christ Jesus... So let's look at the next verse. It's verse 18. And notice that it starts with the word for. If you've got a New King James or other literal translations, it should start with the word for. And so Paul is building his case here. He says, for if I build again those things which I once destroyed, I then make myself a transgressor. Now in this context, he could be talking about Peter that Peter is trying to rebuild those old social order lines and trying to separate Jew from Gentile. And he says, let's, let's go back to the old covenant. Let's go back to the old law where I can't eat those things that are, co- that are that I have to eat kosher diet. I can't eat Gentile food and I can't associate with these guys and I'm not one with them. And Paul is saying, wait a minute, if you go back and you rebuild those old social distinctions then you never met Jesus because Jesus has torn those things down. And if you've never met Jesus, then you're just making yourself a transgressor again. You need to get saved, Peter. Or he could be saying, Paul could be admitting that, you know what, if I go back and I start rebuilding what I was trying to tear down as a, as a Pharisee, then, and I go back into that, then I still need a Savior because that didn't save me. But what I think he's really saying, he says, if anyone who receives Jesus Christ by faith, any of us this morning, and we go back into some kind of legalism, rules, rituals, human standards, instead of the person of Jesus Christ, then we just make ourselves transgressors because we need to lean on him We need to walk in the fullness of Him. We need to be empowered by Him, not by our own strength, our own merit, our own wisdom. You are, in essence, trying to live the Christian life in your own power and your own strength. Then we are found to be sinners, and we need to confess our need. When we get close to Jesus, the more we realize we need Him. Let's look at the next word, for. So we've got one more four in verse 19. For I 
through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. Now, that's a difficult sentence. Let's look at the context. He's saying the law is not a way to get to God. It does not produce righteousness. If I go back to the law, I just make myself a transgressor. So what Paul, I think, is saying, through the law, that's the means. That's the agent that he's using. That's the instrument I'm using. Paul is using the law so that he might die, and it's a dative case, so it means in reference to what the law does. I'm using the law as a means to get closer to God, so that I die to the law as a way to have a relationship with God. I am not going to try to use the law. This is what people need to know. This is what people need to hear that you cannot use doing good to get to God. You have got to die to try uh, from that whole concept. I, I cannot try hard enough to get to God. I've got to just die to that. Because the harder you and I try, all we do is fail over and over and over and over again. And so Paul says, I use the law to die to it. I am not going to find God by the way of the law, is what he's saying in essence. What does the law do? How should we use the law? We should use the law to point out our transgressions. Because the law works wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. And you can flip that around. Wherever there is a law, there is a transgression. Whenever God says, thou shalt not lie, there's a bunch of liars out there. Whenever God says, thou shalt not covet, there's a bunch of coveters out there. Now, without any law, there's no transgression, Paul is saying. But where there is a law, all we do is transgress. And Paul says, I have to die to that because all it does is show me that I'm a transgressor. And this morning, that's what you and I should do with the law. is say, you know what? It exposes me. Now, what's the next step? The law enables us to quantify sin. Quantify means to, to add up, to see how bad it really, really is. And this is what Paul wrote in the Romans. He says, for until the law, sin was in the world, right? Sin has always been in the world since Adam. Nevertheless, sin was not imputed until the Mosaic law. The word impute means to calculate, to add up. We were all sinners, so Paul says, don't get, in fact, he says, people were still dying, right, from Adam to Moses. So we are, we are just sinners of who we are. But when the law came, you were able to impute it. You were able to calculate it. You were able to count it up. Now, none of us, could even make an attempt at counting how many times we sinned, could we? It shows us I'm a transgressor. It shows us that I sin over and over and over and over. That's what the law does. So thirdly, the law makes sin abound. Romans 5.20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So Paul took the law. It showed that he was a transgressor. It showed that it just kept piling up, and then it just abounded. And he did that so that he might die to it, and then the result is that he might live to God. 
Now, Paul uses this in Romans chapter 7. He uses the Jews' understanding of death, freeing people from the obligations of the law. So he uses marriage as an analogy. He says, as long as a person is alive, they are bound to the law of marriage. And he's using this as an illustration. And so if you remarry and your spouse is still living, under the law you are considered an adulterer. But if your spouse dies, then you are free to the law. And you can marry whoever you choose to under the Lord, and you're not considered an adulterer anymore. And so what Paul is saying, I took the law, and now I died to it so that I can be free to live unto God. And that's the purpose. We enter into this new life that I might live unto God. I am no longer under guilt. I am no longer, and you are no longer under condemnation because you died to the law, and now you live unto God. But more importantly, I am no longer under sin's dominion. Sin no longer is my master. Sin is no longer your master. This is what Paul wrote to the Romans, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death no more has dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So you and I now are not obligated by the law to live up to it. We live unto God and we are set free to live righteous and godly lives. It's our union with Christ that now needs to be lived out every single day. So he gets to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified. Now that's a very literal translation because the tense is a perfect tense in the original language. We see something that happened in the past, but it has results that carry on indefinitely in the future. You have been crucified with Christ. That was a historical event that has present day reality. You are dead with Christ. You are buried with Christ. Your old man was crucified with Christ. Why? In order that the body of sin might be destroyed. That's where you and I are, and we have to live this out daily because Paul switches to the present tense in the rest of this verse. The voice is passive. We don't have to crucify ourselves. Well, we do in a sense, but in a real sense, when Jesus Christ was crucified, we were there with him and all that that meant, and we share in his victory as well. Self then no longer exists. What a wonderful, what a wonderful thought. And not just a thought, it's a theological truth. I have been crucified. It is I who no longer live. Present tense. So the self-life has been done away with. The self-desires, the selfish ambitions, they have been crucified. Now, what do I do? How do I practically live that out? Because every one of us knows, okay, pastor, I know I still have those selfish thoughts. I know I still have those selfish ambitions. What do we do? We yield ourselves unto God as instruments of righteousness. 
we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, and we reckon ourselves to be alive with God, and we put off the old man with all of his deeds, and we put on the new man which is created in the likeness of God. And that's spiritual discipline. That's what you and I can do. And we can do this practically every single day. Why? Because we have been crucified with Christ. That is a historical fact, and that's a religious and spiritual reality. So present now, I can say that I no longer live. I don't have to live for myself. I don't have to live under the dominion of sin. We have transferred our lordship because Christ now lives unto God. We have also been set free to live unto God. Christ is the operative power for living the Christian life. Look at the next phrase in this verse. I no longer live, but what is it? It is Christ who lives in me. He is the operative power to live out the Christian life. You and I can't do the Christian life, can we? But Christ in you, the hope of glory, can. So who gets the credit and who gets the glory? God does. The present life in Christ is experienced now It is Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And if we live any other way, it disannuls the effectiveness of the power of Christ. And that's what he says in verse 21. I do not disannul. I do not frustrate the grace of God. I don't set it aside. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. There are two ways that you and I can nullify the grace of God. One, that's to live through the law. And to say that the law is the way I'm going to try to live my Christian life. I'm going to try to be obedient. I'm going to try to live it in my own strength, in my own power. And we can't do that. That nullifies grace. The second way, and I think this is what most of us are in danger to, and especially in modern Christianity, and that is to live as though the power of Christ's death makes no practical difference in overcoming sin. We live as if his death makes no practical significance for the way that I live. And when we do that, we really disannul the grace of God Because the grace of God that has brought salvation to all man has appeared. And the grace of God, Titus 2.11-14, teaches us to deny ungodliness, to live soberly, to live righteously in this present age. Should I continue to sin so that grace just abounds God forbid, how shall we who are dead in reference to sin live any longer in it? And when we have that attitude, we have disannulled the power of grace. Grace is the power to transform of his pleroma, the fullness of Jesus Christ have we all received and grace for today, and grace for tomorrow, on top of, in addition to more and more and more and more grace. For you and I walk by faith in the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. 
Freedom from the law never suggests free to sin, does it? If the law had been sufficient to achieve righteousness, then victory in Christ... I'm sorry, let me say that again. If the law had been sufficient to achieve righteousness and victory, then Christ died for nothing. It is grace upon grace and the fullness of Christ that we've all received. So how are we going to apply this this morning? First of all, you never, ever have to question whether you're right with God. Isn't that a wonderful promise? You'll never have to second guess, am I really right with God? Am I one of God's chosen? Am I good enough to make it to heaven? You have received the fullness of Jesus Christ. If you have placed your faith in Christ, then you are sufficiently saved in him alone. You'll never have to question that again. How do we get there? We All we have to do is confess that I've been found a sinner. Does that make Christ the minister of sin? No. All it does is show that you were a sinner all the time, and now you're acknowledging that you needed a Savior. When we draw close to Christ, we are exposed. And the closer we draw to Jesus, the more you and I realize that we need Him to live out our Christian life. It is I who no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the closer I get to Him... The more I see my failures, the more I turn around and I run to Jesus. I say, okay, Jesus, you live your life through me today. God uses the moral law to reveal to you and I that that we are great transgressors. You and I couldn't even begin to count how much we fail and how much sin has been imputed to our account without Christ. So die to the law with Christ daily and live unto God. Embrace the truth that when Christ died, you died with him. By faith, live each day by his power and his resurrected life in you. Do not disannul the grace of Christ by letting sin dominate you. Don't let that happen. Secondly, don't disannul the power of Christ by trying to live a godly life in your own strength. Live it in the power of Christ. So I, I hope and trust that this was encouraging in a way that we can share simple truths with people who are very moral, but still very, very lost. That when you take the law of God and you apply it to any good moral person, it exposes them as transgressors. And as transgressors, every one of their sins is going to be imputed to them. And every one of those imputed sin makes sin abound even more. But here is the gospel and the good news. Where sin abound, grace much more abounded. Father God, we as Christians, we take these truths for granted. And yet, God, we really don't meditate on the deepness of the thought that Christ fulfilled every single statute of the Mosaic Law. 
not only the statutes and the moral laws, but God, he fulfilled every single one of the religious laws. God, he he walked as a Jew and fulfilled every single thing that no Jew ever could have done. And God, we thank you that all of his righteousness is put into our account by faith in what he did for us. God, this morning, we want to thank you that we are complete, that we're not fractions, we're not broken people, we are whole, we are well, we are spiritually united with our God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that these truths will help us, that we will apply them when we're talking to good moral people, that we will point them to Jesus Christ. Because if their good deeds are good enough, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. God, it's either one or the way or the other. Thank you, Father, for making it so crystal clear to us today that it's Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Our last...